I have two waters. Okay. So um, I'm going to pray just a little bit more. I bind shame in this room in the name of Jesus. Actually, put your hand on the shoulder of somebody next to you. Shame. Everybody was born with shame. Shame's not like bad personality trait. It's something God wants to deal with. But everybody was born with shame because we're all born sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. So Holy Spirit, right now in this room, we cancel the assignment of shame against every person in this room in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you release the love of the Father into us right now in Jesus' name? Just take away all the written qualifications that we have in our minds right now and just fill us with what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this message is called What It Means to Be on Fire for God. And God gave me a very specific passage this morning to start with, which was Jeremiah 3. And he showed it to me in a supernatural way. So I believe I have the word of the Lord for us this morning and that he's going to do more than me saying anything could do and more than you hearing anything could do. He's going to do something supernatural with these words. There's six pages of notes. It's 1110 right now, okay? You will know it's a miracle if I get through whatever God says I should get through. Okay, just joking. That's an out. That's an out. Okay. Jeremiah 3, 6 to 11. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. Now you have to know Israel in this time, Israel is the northern part of Israel, what we would call Samaria or the, the, the part that was divided out from Judah. There's a tribe named Judah that's down kind of in the middle in Jerusalem, and then he's talking to Israel. But he's about to talk about Judah, and Judah is the place where the temple was, okay? So he's saying, this place where the temple's not, that's Israel, he says, do you see what she's done? She's gone up on all these high mountains under evergreen tree, and there played the harlot. That means that she went up on the high places where the other nations worshipped, because she was covering her bases that Jehovah wasn't enough. And I said, after she'd done all these things, return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, he says the same things. They're worried about the same things in Judah as they were in Israel for the same causes. He says, for all the causes which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I'd put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also for the same reasons. So it came to pass through her casual, everybody say casual, harlotry. Did she do it on purpose? No. She didn't even realize it. It was kind of casual. She was just casually worshiping God. Through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. So Judah actually looked more worshipful and loyal to Jehovah than Israel, but God was like, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. That's a pretense. That's surface. Everybody say surface. That's what pretense means. Just what people saw, not what was going on inside. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. He's like Israel, the north part away from the temple, is more righteous, even though they did the same things, because Judah pretends to know me. She pretends to want me. Now, Listen to what I'm about to say. It's very tempting to want to look like someone that knows God. And when you're around people that look like they know God, to feel ashamed. And God wants to break that off of us. He'd much rather we were ourselves and let him know us. Everybody say know us. 
He actually just wants us to be honest with him. If we're doing that, then we're in a good place with him. But if we're pretending to be good Christians, if we're pretending to be people that don't do anything wrong, but truly inside, we're jealous, we're ashamed, we're greedy, we're lustful, we're impatient, we're unkind. He's like, it'd be way better for you just to tell me who you are than to have a pretense of following me, okay? Now, God, this is because he's looking for intimacy. Item one on the notes. There's only one thing on the whole planet that's broken. Now, listen to what I'm saying. There's one disease on the whole planet. There's no other problem. You could be, I could be like, okay, what's wrong with the earth? And you might be like, well, selfishness, murder, greed, abortion, uh, division. And all those things are symptoms of one disease. There's only one thing broken on the whole planet. And if there's one thing broken, then there's really only one thing required. Now, shame will get you to say, okay, I got to stop being greedy. I got to stop being angry. I got to stop being jealous. I got to stop being divided. I got to stop, you know, my selfishness. I know there's abortion, but I'm selfish too. I got to stop all these things. That's, that won't work. You can't do that. There's one thing broken, so there's one thing required. The one thing that you can do and that you're supposed to do and that is required is that you get into a relationship that is intimacy with God as you are right now, not to clean up your life to come to God. It's actually to come to God so he can do something different in you, so that he can free you from all the things the world is trying to be good about. So right now, this message, what this means is everybody can take a step into wholehearted love this morning, if you want to. You can take a step into what it's called to be on fire for God this morning. On fire for God has got nothing to do with how much time you spend at church. It's got nothing to do with how much time you spend in worship meetings. Nothing to do with how much time you spend reading your Bible. Nothing to do with that stuff. Wholehearted for God means you are completely yourself with him and completely believing he's your only hope. And if you believe that, what he will do is take that and he will turn it into somebody that looks like they're on fire because they are. And other people will see that and be tempted to try and mimic it rather than do the one thing that's required, which is get into a good, close, true relationship with God. It's not on you. If you're on fire for God, it's not on you what other people try to do because of that. It's on you what you do when you see other people on fire for God. And if you think, I got to read my Bible more, I got to study more, I got to spend more time in church, oh, I feel like junk because I don't. And you let that push you further and further and further from God, the enemy's winning. You don't want the enemy to win. When you see somebody on fire for God, you're supposed to say, if he did that for them, of course he would do it for me. He made me too. And I don't know if they're being honest with God or not, but I'm going to be honest with God about where I'm really at. That's the entire message of the gospel. I was in a prayer meeting one time. We drove all the way to Kansas City. I had a confusing weekend. I thought I was going to have all these things happen with God, and none of those things happened. And I'm like, God, I don't get it. Like, why didn't all the things I thought were going to happen happen? I'm sitting in a room by myself. My family's at a hotel asleep. And this little girl, probably like 18 years old, started singing, the gospel is just me hearing you and you hearing me. And I sat there with my Bible, this thick Bible, And I'm like, if that's the whole gospel, why are there so many words? Because there's so many things in between me hearing God and God hearing me. That's the reason. But the gospel is that simple. It's just you hearing God and God hearing you. And there's so much shame and pride that get in between those two things. That's the entire fall of man was a fall into shame because of pride, okay? And they're the same thing. So... All that back to item A. Only one thing is broken, therefore only one thing is required. Luke 10, 41 to 42. Don't take my word for anything this morning. Ask God. He will tell you. 
He told me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, if you know the story, you probably do. Martha was at, and Mary were at the same pre-party. They're getting ready for a bunch of people to be there with Jesus. Martha's running all over the place trying to do stuff. Mary's sitting there listening to Jesus. Martha says, Jesus, tell her to get up and move. She's actually trying to shame Mary into helping her. And Jesus is like, no, Martha, it doesn't work that way. I don't want Mary ashamed that she's not helping you. She's doing the right thing right now, okay? Now, hear what I'm saying. No one else can connect you to God. Only you can. Only you can connect you to God. Somebody can preach the truth to you, but unless God draws a person, they cannot be saved. Only you saying yes to that drawing. And this morning, he's trying to draw all of us closer, one step closer. Not all the way closer. The next step closer. And if we'll let him, then we will be closer to him, okay? And that's really, this message was being preached all through worship. I don't know if you heard it or not, but I heard it because I knew what I was going to talk about. In the fall, in the garden, so I mean in the Garden of Eden, intimacy without shame. Everybody say that with me. We're going to say three words, intimacy without shame together, okay? Because Not because it's going to do some magic thing. It just focuses on one thing, and you can think a lot of things, and right now you're thinking a ton of things, but you can only say one thing at a time, okay? So ready? Intimacy without shame. One more time. Intimacy without shame. This is the most difficult thing for a human being to do with God. What I just said, it would take a miracle for you to be able to do that. Why? Because you should be ashamed. The truth is, without Jesus, you should be ashamed. But with Jesus, to be ashamed is to fall into sin. So without Jesus, there's, you got no chance of getting into heaven. And if you think you do, you should be ashamed of yourself. I'm being serious. But with Jesus, he already did everything to get you into heaven. And if you're ashamed, you actually don't believe that. Do you see what I'm saying? So what we're going for is intimacy, everybody say intimacy, without, without shame. What I'm telling you is David's personality. King David had this personality. He had intimacy with God without shame. And if you look at David's life, you'd be like, he did a bunch of stuff I'd be ashamed of if I were him. But he wasn't ashamed. Every time he found out his sin, he ran into God, not away from God. We have to have this, okay? This is the whole point of the Bible. So the point of the Bible is never to beat you over the head that you're not good enough, that you're not doing the right things, that you did this sinful thing. It's never that. It's always to say, come on, I know where you're at. That's why I'm calling you. I know where you're at. Come with me. Do you see what I'm saying? Always. Genesis 3, 7 to 11. 7 to 11. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Speaking of Adam and Eve, this is the very first moment of sin and the very first moment of shame. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. This is actually the first sin. Okay? Listen. And they heard sound of the, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Who told Adam that he was naked? Adam. Adam told Adam he was naked. Even the snake didn't do that. That was Adam. The snake set up the right conditions for Adam to be aware of it. But Adam was the one saying, I'm naked. I'm not right. I'm less than I need to be. That's what he's saying. I'm less than I need to be. Was he wrong? No, he was not. 
But God had a plan to redeem that. God had a plan to cover him. So today during worship, Jen started to sing about shining like light, like shining like being radiant and shining like a light. That's actually what Adam and Eve were wearing. They were wearing light. When Jesus, just before he went to the cross, like sometime around this same time in his earthly ministry, you know, before that Passion Week or maybe a little bit before now, he went up on a mountain and he said, he told his disciples, you're going to see the kingdom coming with power. Some of you won't die before you see the kingdom coming with power. And then he took three of them up on a mountain and he got so bright, it shone right through his clothes. They couldn't tell, you know, that he had cool style on. All they could see was light. This is, this is how we're supposed to be. So when the light goes away, you are ashamed. But when, there's, when you're filled with light, then you're not supposed to be ashamed. This is how you know. This is where your shame, if you've got shame, you're not filled with light. Do you see what I'm saying? When you start to get filled with light, you shine something out that you're not. God is that thing. God is the light. Do you get what I'm saying? You follow me? Okay. Now, this intimacy that Adam and Eve had with God, it was the source of life. When shame and pride came in the way of intimacy, all of creation suffered, not just Adam and Eve, all of creation so when we look at all of creation right now, we have to understand it's because God's people aren't shining with light. When we look at the problems in Ukraine or the, the problems with the climate, all the, you know, the 17 atmospheric rivers, they made up that term like in the last 10 years, atmospheric rivers for tons of storms that come and just pummel the place. When we look at that, we're supposed to know, oh, the people of God aren't shining with light and creation is suffering because of that. Now, it's very tempting to try and shame the symptoms and to stop being symptoms. Shame the person that's having an abortion and not having an abortion. Shame the person that's living in sin and not living in sin. Shame the person that's drinking and not drinking. Shame the person that's... That is trying to solve a disease by putting out the symptoms. That will never work. You actually have to get to the core of what's broken. And you're never going to make people get intimate with God. Wouldn't that be a violation of a relationship? If I was like, Jen, you and, you and Steph, you've got to be best friends. That would be a violation of what it means to be best friends. That would be, have, have to be something you two chose, right? So we can't get anybody to be intimate with God. The way the Bible is set up is I get in a close relationship, an honest relationship with God, and then I let him shine out through me. And anybody who wants that, that's an invitation to say if he did it through him, he'd do it through anybody. He'd do it through anybody. Now, the land, relationships, the entire creation changed, even as that juice was still on the chin of Adam and Eve. When they bit that, it was like all creation just started this, oh, this groan. And ever since then, creation has been groaning. When you see an earthquake, when you see pain, when you see suffering, creation is groaning that the sons of God would be revealed. Those people that are shining with light would be back again. Because okay, the, cre the creation was actually meant to live in a light much brighter than the sun. If you look at the creation account in Genesis 1, you're going to see God made the plants and the trees before he made the sun and the moon. The trees, the earth, the, everything is supposed to live in a light brighter than the sun. The problem is it's not. It's only living in this lifeline. The, the mercy of God is that he gave us the sun and the moon. But if you look in the New Jerusalem, when, when heaven returns to the earth, the sun and the moon, they, it won't be night anymore. Jesus will be the light of all of creation. And he won't just be like Jesus, like a light bulb in Jerusalem. It's his body. It's you. You're going to be the light. Jesus' body plus Jesus the, Jesus the head is going to be the light of all creation. Do you get that? That might sound too big. might sound too metaphorical. But I want to tell you, it's real. It's real. And we can know, if you want proof of this, 
Look outside. <laughs> Look around. The earth is broken. But it wasn't made to be broken. It wasn't made to be barely alive. It wasn't made to be shriveling up and dying. That's the proof, okay? Because he's good, and he didn't make it for junk. Now, it was clear in the shame that all this stuff broke. It was clear in the shame. And this is what I mean. There are innumerable symptoms of this one disease, but there's only one disease. Enmity between God and man. Just you feeling like God might not like you, that's a symptom of the disease. He likes you. He wouldn't have made you if he didn't like you. You feeling like God might not like you, that's a symptom of the sickness. That's like you got a fever. There's something wrong. Let's get some medicine. And the medicine is running to God no matter what you think he thinks about you because he likes you, guaranteed. You, your heart wouldn't be beating if he didn't have hope for you. Murder, abortion, greed, lust, hatred, jealousy, climate issues, sickness, death, man-hating man, animals, you know, trying to attack man, man man-eating animals. These were all symptoms of the fall of man. It is none of this was intended, okay? Genesis 3, 17. Now, God will use it, though, for the good of those who love him. So when I say none of it was intended, none of it also surprised God, okay? He knew it was going to happen. Genesis 3, 17. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground. Wait, the ground is cursed because I ate the fruit? Yes. Why? Why, Noah? Yeah. Very good. We were given dominion and leadership over the land. When God gives something, he really gives it. <laughs> he doesn't, like, give it. And like, I don't know if you're going to do it good and take it back. Noah's about to take over our house, and Sam's like, ah, God's not like that, so we're not like that either. No, you do whatever you want. God, God gave the earth to man, and when we're suffering on a broken earth, it's because of man. It's because of man, and it's not everybody that doesn't know God. It's the people that are supposed to know him. If you've got the Holy Spirit in you, you've got the only chance at helping the earth. So if you're blaming everybody that doesn't have the Holy Spirit, you're already off track. That's shame. That's trying to shame people into something you think you are, but you're not using what you have. That's ridiculous. We're supposed to be people that are like, he gave me his spirit. I'm going to use it to get close to him. That's the one thing broken, and I'll see what he does with what's around me. That's what David did. David took 20 to 30 years of waiting to be king, and when he became king, he set up a worship center in Israel to get as close to God as he could and invite everybody else that wanted to to get as close as they could, and it radically changed the land of Israel. Israel became wealthy. It changed what grew there. It changed peace. Instead of getting attacked from the Philistines and all their enemies, it started to expand. That's what we need, right? That's what's broken here. We're all afraid. Is this going to happen? Are these people going to do this? Is that going to happen? We need to be a people that stop trying to put out all the symptoms and get into the one thing that's broken. Not, I'm not saying be a better Christian, though I, I kind of am. What I'm saying is come to God just as you are and say, God, I want to know you. I want you to know me. I want to open up. I want to be real. If I'm greedy, I want to tell you I'm greedy. If I'm sitting, I want to tell you about it. I don't want to fix it. I want to tell you about it. You fix it. You tell me what to do. We have to stop telling God what we're going to do about our sin. What we're saying when we do that, when we're like, God, I'm going to read my Bible more because I know I'm not doing it enough. We're saying the blood of your son just isn't enough. But the blood of his son is enough. It is enough. So there's all kinds of symptoms. And this is, this is where it came from. Curses the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife, uh, his name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam uh, and his wife, 
the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So death, it started right there. All of the enmity, all the brokenness of the world in death started right there. The animals had to die to cover them. You see what I'm saying? That's where it started. And that's exactly what God told Adam was going to happen. He's like, if you break this intimate relationship with me, if you don't trust me in all these things, what's going to happen is death is going to enter, and I'm going to give you one choice to not trust me. It's to eat this one thing, and they ate that one thing. It broke that one thing, and death came. And actually, we're trying to get into the place of resurrection, of everlasting life. Now, the cross, everybody say the cross. The cross is an outworking of something deeper than just sacrifice. When you see the cross, and we're, we're about to celebrate Easter next week, when you see the cross, it's tempting to think that's the pinnacle of the love of God right there. But where that cross is planted, there's something else. The cross is an outworking. It's something that grows from the love of God for you. The cross is a, an outgrowth of the radical drastic, willing to do anything love for you. Do you see what I'm saying? So when you look at the cross, it's tempting to be like, I got to do something to be worthy of that thing. That is a fleshy antichrist thought. When you look at that cross, you're supposed to be like, there's nothing I could do or he wouldn't have done that. There's nothing. I, he loves me so much. He did everything because there's one thing broken. There's not a bunch of things broken. There's one thing broken. That's what that cross means. You see what I'm saying? You guys with me? Okay, the flesh cannot understand this because of shame. The flesh interprets the cross as a culmination of requirements. How many of you ever felt that way? You start to think about following God, church, and you immediately start to think about the things you got to get rid of in your life. Anybody ever thought that way? That's a wrong thought. You can't get rid of that stuff or there wouldn't be a cross. That's a wrong thought. When you think of following God, you should think of all the junk that's messed up in your life that he could fix. Oh, I got a good reason to follow God. I got a bunch of junk in my life that he could fix. That would put you closer to him, right? Not further from him. But if you look at your life and like, I got to fix a bunch of junk because that cross deserves me being good, then the devil has gotten in and twisted you all around. That's your flesh. That's the way man thinks. God looks at the cross and he says, come to me, all you who are weary. I'll give you rest. I want to help you. I want to help you just like you are right now. Now, the cross puts all the, re the requirements on one thing. It's very tempting to look at the cross and say, okay, there's a bunch of stuff I got to change. But the cross distills it all to one thing, okay? Luke 18, 18 to 24. Now, a certain ruler, this is the rich young ruler, if you know the story, asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? This is the setup right here. What he was saying was, buddy, there is nothing you could do to inherit eternal life. That's your problem. Like, you're, you got the whole thing messed up. You see me, and you think I'm good, and you think you're good, and you're trying to actually get qualified, me and you, like this. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't qualifying us and him. Jesus is a reconciler. He's a mediator of a, of a new covenant. He's reconciling you to the Father. And that's what he's trying to tell this guy. You are looking here. Look here. Right? Listen. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That's God. Everybody say one. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus, the, the period is right there. Jesus ended his statement to this guy right there. And what he's saying is, you already think you're righteous. You do all this stuff. Why are you asking me? But he knew. I don't feel it. It's not enough. I don't feel like I have confidence that I'm going to have eternal life. Anybody here not have confidence you're going to have eternal life? Very good. Honest, 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 honest. Holy Spirit, just close your eyes right now in this room. 
Take away the list of written requirements right now in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, fill us with confidence in the resurrection. Fill us with confidence that Jesus told the truth. In his name, amen. Now, the enemy's going to come along. He's going to try and pull that back out. Don't let him. All right. I've, I could never meet the list of requirements. I could never, in my own strength, have confidence that I'm going to take part in the resurrection. I'm going to trust in Jesus. Okay? That's what it means to trust upon Jesus. Part of it. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack, everybody say it, one thing. He could have said to him, you wasted your time, son, all the way to this moment because you never found the one thing that you need. You've actually spun spun your wheels being self-righteous, and you never could be. You still lack the one thing, okay? He's not saying, oh, you've done really good up to this point. Just one more thing, and you're there. That's the flesh hears it that way. He's saying, you've spun your wheels. You haven't found the one thing. You see what I'm saying? It's totally different. Okay, listen. So he says, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. That the one thing this guy's missing is a close, intimate relationship with Jesus. He's like, all your stuff is in the way. All the stuff that you've accomplished is in the way. All the stuff you've stored up, it's in the way. I want you to actually leave all it. I'm inviting you to be one of my disciples today. Like, do you want to be with Peter, John, James? The guys you see, they're surrounding me. I'm doing these miracles. You know this is a move of God. You've been trying to get into this your entire life. You've obeyed all these commandments your whole life. You've actually succeeded. You've done well. You've clamped down on all the parts that would try to run away. You've been successful. And he's saying all of that is keeping you from this one thing. This one thing. Let it go. Let it go, son. Come follow me. I invite you. I'll take you into the one thing right now. Isn't that amazing? He could pick the one thing right then. It wasn't that he had to do three years of learning the one thing. Jesus was like, right now, I'll give you the one thing that you're missing. He's saying that to you this morning. Right now, I'll give you the one thing. If you just say yes, just say yes. You could never earn it. You could never store it up. What everybody thinks is success is your failure. There's one thing required to need me, to need me. And the more you get to know him, I tell you, you're going to see you need him more. I see my sin way more right now than I did 10 years ago, way more. And I'm broken about it way more. That's what he wants. But I could pretend to you, I could clamp everything down. I could present a picture to you of a guy who does all the rules. I don't drink this. I don't eat that. I don't watch that. I could do all those things. And that might help you think I was great, but God wouldn't believe it. I'd way rather God believed it, way rather. I'd way rather be real before you, real before God, and have him have something burning inside of me. That's what it means to be on fire for God, to have something burning that isn't changed by circumstances or what other people's eyes say. I burn because I know he loves me. That's it. That's it. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, I'm not all the way there. So I just made a statement that sounds way more confident than I feel, but I know this is true. This one thing I found is true. And I found it actually here. I found it coming week after week, bored with God and saying, what is going on, God? There's something missing. There's like, I do all this stuff. And he's like, Tom, you're missing one thing. And he says that so many days. And it's always just another, right, yes. I can have confidence today, right now. Do you see what I'm saying? You guys with me? Okay, now, Genesis 2, 14 to 15. This is what Jesus did on the cross. 
having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, all the things you can't do. Raise your hand if you think there's some holy stuff you can't do. Raise your hand if you think there's some holy stuff you don't even want to do. Good, you're honest. He knows that. He knows you don't want to do it too. So that's when you say, God, I know there's some things I'm supposed to be doing. I don't even want to do them. He's like, sweet, that's what I was waiting for. I'll actually help you if you want. Do you want me to help you want it? Yes, I want to want you. I'll do it. He's, I'll do it. I went to the cross. I'm so willing to do it. That's the, the most helpful prayer I've ever found in my entire life. I've been in the church my entire life. I'm 50 years old. The most helpful prayer I've ever found is I want to want to. God, I want to want to. But when I look inside, there's so many other things I actually want to do. What is wrong with me? It's broken. I, have you ever had this experience? You do the thing you want to do. Don't do the thing you want to want to do. And then you do the thing you want to do, and it's empty. And you're like, this sucks. He knows that. He knows that. He's not ashamed of that. He'd way rather have people that were like, I want to want to, and then do it. He said there's this parable about these two sons. He tells the two sons what the father wants them to do. One of them says, I'll go do it, never does it. The other one says, I don't want to do it, and then goes and does it. He says, that one's justified. But if you're always like, I just want to be a person that everybody thinks I kind of love God. I just don't actually want to do all this stuff. He's like, that's everybody. Tell me about it. Just tell me about it, and I'll help you. I'll help you. That's called wholehearted love. Did you know that? Did you know that's wholehearted love? People that are like, I want to want to. He's like, all the way to the bottom of you, you're honest. You love me so much, you're willing to be honest before me. Now, when you get to the point you can be honest with God and honest before people, then you're shining. You're burning. That's what he's looking for. He doesn't want a bunch of people shining that repels people in sin to feel like they could never do it. He wants a bunch of people shining that attracts people that are like, I got to change. And, and he changes people. I want to change too. Do you want to change too? Of course, you wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning. There's, it's a sunny out, finally. Like there's a bunch of other stuff to do. You're doing great. Shame is the main weapon of Satan to confuse the church into her flesh. If Satan can keep the church in the flesh, he can keep the church under him. If he can keep the church trying hard, he can keep it under him. That's what he wants. That's actually the best state for Satan is somebody that wants to please God. They believe all the requirements, and then they try to please God. They waste all their time trying to do something Jesus already did. That He loves that. If you're, if you're off cold, all on your own, you're going to come to the end of yourself quick. If you're on fire, recognizing you could never save yourself, you just want to love God, you're going to grow, 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 grow. But that lukewarm in the middle, he's like, Perfect. Yeah, beat yourself up about how terrible you are for 50 years and then die. That's perfect. That's what I want. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't give up and go cold. That's the hard way to learn this lesson. Just tell God, I could never do any of this stuff without you. I don't even want to, but I want to want to. I believe it's possible for you to change my heart. I want to want to. Does that make sense? Now, Satan, he's the ruler of the world. That's what the, what the Bible calls him. Now, he's, been, he's in the process of being defeated, but he's the king of the flesh. That's what that means. And he's being cast out, even right now, as we choose intimacy without shame. When you start to say, God, I don't care what the accuser's saying to me. I'm coming near you. Satan gets burned off. He can't. It's like, you know, an asteroid coming into the Earth's atmosphere. He's hanging on, hanging on, hanging on. And then that heat of the friction, he burns off. If you're just like, I don't care what I'm doing wrong. I want to get close to you, God. That's what defeats Satan. If you're like, I'm so terrible. I just keep orbiting way far out like Pluto around the sun. Satan's like, sweet, let's keep doing this. This is great. 
I can wear you out and take you away. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. How many of you have ever felt accused of not being a good Christian, not by other people, but just by your own flesh? Okay, that is a thought inspired by Satan. Okay, Revelation 12, 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Everybody say day and night. So if you ever wonder, Tom, why do you care about day and night prayer? This is why. I care about day and night prayer because there is already a prayer movement happening in heaven where Satan is talking to God and telling him all of my junk. And I don't actually want to just be okay with that. I want to be like, God, what's he saying? Is it true? Show me. Fix it. Let's t- I agree with him. I do not deserve you. I do not deserve heaven. He's right. Do something about it. That's what the Bible says. says make peace with your adversary while you're in the way, lest he bring you before the judge and the judge punish you for what you're doing. God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. When Satan highlights or when he's poking you and saying, you're no good, you're no good, that's the best thing to do is say, God, Satan's saying I'm a liar. He's right. I am a liar. And God's like, I'll fix it, son. And then he deals with Satan. But if you're like, I'm not a liar. I'm not, you get in a conversation with Satan self-defending, that's what Satan wants. He accuses you to get you to start talking to Satan. But you don't need to do that. You just go to the Father. Oh, He's right. I am a liar. I do not like this. I hate that. I don't want to do that. I don't like people. I'm tired of this. I'm tired. Like, if you tell God that, he'll deal with you. That's what you want. I believe all those things I just said to you. But not about you. I do like you. Okay. Now, shame will never put you on the cross. Item K. It keeps you from it. I'm going to say that one more time. Shame will never put you on the cross. Shame will keep you from it. If you feel like you don't measure up like other people do, you're afraid of other people, and when other people don't believe that you're serving God, you'll quit. Shame will never put you on the cross. It will always keep you from it, okay? Jesus despises shame, which is what allowed him to take up the cross. He, he literally had a, a view of himself that was entirely that God had sent him. That's it. His entire view of his self, his entire identity was God sent me, I'll let God judge me. This is the same thing all the writers of the New Testament said. I don't even judge myself. I just try my best to obey God. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Now, that's not the right way to say it, like, because it's, it's, it can be very callous to be like, I don't care what anybody thinks. That's not what I'm describing. What I'm describing is I care so much about what God thinks, I understand other people misunderstand me. I understand that. That's okay. I misunderstand other people. I just want to burn. I just, if you want that, if you want to burn, let's just close our eyes for a second. Just tell them, God, I want to burn for you. I want to burn for you. In this, in this room, God, where there's an open yes and a heart saying, I actually do want to burn for you. I, I mean, I don't want to, but I want to want to. Touch it in Jesus' name. Amen. That will really change everything. That, just those simple prayers, that's what changes everything. Shame keeps you toiling in trying to save yourself. A lot of people serve God zealously, full of shame. They're just spinning, trying to earn something or trying to look like somebody who is in a certain place with God. That is terrible. You don't want that to happen to you. You will burn out. You actually, God will let you burn out that way. He's not looking for a bunch of willing warriors that will go out and tirelessly work for him. He's actually working for people that want to come and rest with him. And if you come and rest with him, he'll always inspire you to do things. But when God inspires you to do things, it's an overflow of energy that comes down from heaven. And you're like, I want to do it. I want to do it because I got this overflow coming down. 
And if God tells you to do something that you don't want to do, what's the right thing to do in that moment? Grit your teeth and go do it because that's what Christians do? No. God, I don't even want to do this. How many times, Sam, have we had an opportunity to serve somebody selflessly and we're both like, that sounds terrible. And we tell God, we know that that's not right, that it sounds terrible. We change our heart. He changes our heart. And a lot of times he takes away the thing that we thought we were going to have to do. Often. Have you had anybody had that experience? You're like, ugh, that sounds awful. God, I know I don't want to be that person. I'm not going to grip my teeth and do the thing. I'm going to tell you, that sounds awful. He changes your heart, and then he actually takes the burden away. That happens all the time. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what God's going to do. So it's very tempting on the front end to be like, if I say yes to God this way, he's going to make me do this, he's going to make me do that, he's going to make me do You don't know. You have no idea what's going to happen. If you say yes to God this way, I guarantee you he'll give you everything you need to take the very next step. And that's all he's asking from you is the next step. That's all. You get to pick the whole way. That's the, the crazy, scary part about it is you can always pick to stop being wholehearted. You could be wholehearted today, and tomorrow you can be like, I'm tired of it. I quit. The terrifying thing is he will let you. But you don't want him to. So you just say, okay, I'm going to do the next thing. I'm not going to borrow tomorrow's worry. I just want to do the thing today that, that is, is clear with God, and then I'll leave tomorrow to tomorrow. And if he gave me enough for today, I believe he's going to give me enough tomorrow. But if you start thinking, I'm going to have to get rid of that. This relationship's got to end. i got to do this thing. And you get yourself two years out, you will never do it. That's what the rich and ruler did. He's like, that's too hard. I'm going to go do something else. And he could have been a disciple of Jesus. You don't want that to happen to you. Okay. Um, so shame keeps you toiling and trying to save yourself. Intimacy without shame brings you into the place of salvation. Most, everybody say most will die thinking they were right with God because of what they did. Most people in this room right now, if you don't repent, you will die thinking you were right with God because you got a list in your mind of all the things you've changed and all the things you've done for God. And if you don't get rid of that list, then you won't actually be with him. But there are some people, they recognize all the things they could never do for God, and that leads them to recognize all the things God's done for them, and they die to themselves, and God changes them. This has to be your testimony. Your testimony has to be one where Jesus gets the glory and not you. God will not share the glory of his son because of that cross and because of the love that that thing's planted in. He will never share the glory of his son with man. If he did, that would mean man could save himself, and man cannot save himself. So to be true, Jesus has to get all the glory. Now, if you hear this wrong, if you hear this in your flesh, what you're hearing is, I don't have to do anything. But that's not true. And if you've ever tried to not do anything and still love God, that's the most miserable state to be in too. It's actually very difficult to not do anything if you're, if you're real and close and true with God. He will always move you to do things. And then the pain becomes, oh, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I kind of don't want to. And that's not an easy thing. What I'm describing isn't cheap grace. It's not false grace. What I'm describing is actually the tearing of your heart, the humbling of your pride, and letting God save you. That's not false grace. That is grace, okay? So intimacy without shame brings you into the place of salvation. Most will die thinking they were right with God because of what they did. They literally belong to Satan because their works don't originate from intimacy, but rather shame. Feeling like they needed to be more than the people around them, or even worse, more than they were when God found them. If God saved you at your worst, what would make you think that you have to be better on your own now? He actually found you way worse and was like, I like you, come with me. And the human arrogance gets into the place where we're like, 
okay, I got to be better and better and better. Isn't that crazy? When he was like, I found you junk. I, I like you like this. I mean, not junk, but I found you as you are. I like you as you are. And I cleaned you up a little bit. Now you think you got to clean yourself up? Like, that's crazy, right? No, if I found you as you are, I'll keep finding you. Every time you want me to find you, I'll keep finding you. Keep coming with me. Keep coming with me. Okay. This is the lie, is that you have to be better than the people around you or better than you were. Many, Matthew 7, 22, many. The word translated many in Matthew 7, 22 actually means most. Like the most common translation of it is most. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Anybody ever seen somebody prophesying? Raise your hand if you've seen somebody prophesying. It should be most people in this room. It's very tempting to be like, oh, they're on fire for God. Maybe. Maybe not. On fire for God is not external. On fire for God is internal, not external, okay? Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Anybody seen anybody cast out demons? Anybody seen the videos on YouTube of the guy who takes his coat, flings the coat around, the whole crowd falls back? Do you know how tempting it is for a minister of the gospel to want people to fall down under their power or their anointing? That's false. That's not real. When you see those videos, that's false. That's not real. Do you know that? If it glorifies man, it's not real. There's all kinds of soul power. There's all kinds of places God lets people do stuff, but it's not real. It's not holy. It's not humble. It's not kind. It's not love. It's not patience. It's not self-control, right? You're supposed to discern these things by the help of the Holy Spirit, to look at something and say, is that humble? Is that self-control? Is that patience? Is that kindness? We live in a test. The fact that you even have access to YouTube means you have way more testing than any other generation before you because you can actually go back 30, 40 years and look at Holy Spirit meetings that were testing a certain group of people, and you can get yourself tested just by seeing it and saying, I want that power, not I want that God. you got to want that God, right? Amen. All right. I wasn't trying to draw the amen out of you. I was actually amening it myself. Okay. Now, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness. You don't want power that doesn't come from God. You don't want a moment where you get the credit. That's terrible. We cannot judge this intimacy without shame in works. That's what God gives us. Works are what God gives us. In this economy, in this paradigm, or this universe that I'm describing to you, no one gets credit for works. Only God gets credit for works. Works are something that grow from reconnecting the one thing broken. Do you see what I'm saying? The only thing you get credit for is saying, yes, God, you can save me. Yes, I'll let you save me. And you can not let him save you. You really can. And you can spin your wheels thinking you're Christian, not letting him save you the whole time. I'm going to do this for you, God. I'm going to do this for you, God. I'm going to do this for you, God. Aren't I doing good, God? I'm going to try and get other people to do this for you, God. This for you, this for you, this for you. Because I want other people to be good like me. Oh, I don't want other people to be good like me. There's no one good but God, right? I want people to be good like Jesus. And the only way that's going to happen is if Jesus does it, right? Okay, so we can't judge this intimacy without shame in works, what God gives us. Though without works, it doesn't exist. So if you're in this intimacy without shame, you will do stuff you wouldn't normally do, okay? But you don't get credit for it. Jesus gets credit for it. And that means that you don't judge it when it's in its small beginnings. You might think, well, yeah, I prayed for the person at the grocery store, but I don't pray for everybody like those people do. And Jesus would be like, 
wait, who prayed for the person at the grocery store? Was it you or me? Oh, you. And you're saying that wasn't enough for you? Oh, right. Prayed for my mom. Yeah, that was, I mean, anybody could pray for their mom. Could they? Could anybody pray for their mom? No. Not without Jesus, you can't. Because you can't even get to the throne room where the prayer goes without Jesus. So you might think, that's so small. I prayed for my boyfriend. I prayed for my mom. And he's like, that's power coming down from heaven from me through you let it be enough let's take the next step let's just take the next step let's stop judging what we're doing based on whatever we think everybody else is doing and let's get into the place where we let god grow us up where we let him grow us in power and intimacy okay that's what he wants so we judge intimacy without shame in the willingness to be unashamed as we're led by god let's say that one more time We judge intimacy without shame. That's the goal, right? Intimacy without shame. In our willingness to be unashamed as we're led by God. That means I see somebody else doing something that I think is, that looks like an on-fire person, and I say, that's awesome. Yes, yay, the body of Christ is growing, and so am I. Yes, amen. And God might do something different in me in a different season than he does in somebody else, but I'm not going to be ashamed about that. I'm just going to keep going into this place where I come to him as I am. You know, he took a murderer of Christians and made him the main writer of the New Testament in just a couple of years. He took Paul, a murderer of Christians, like trying to kill Jesus, and flipped it all around. You don't know what he's going to do with you. You have no idea what he's going to do with you. He's going to do something great, though, if you let him. If you just let him love you, if you just say, I don't even really want to love you, but I want to want to love you. He will do something amazing with you that will radically change you, radically change your kids, radically change your church, radically change your city, radically change your extended family, and life will start to grow in places you were like, I didn't even think life was possible there. And when a bunch of people do this under the pressure of judgment, the whole earth is going to start to get renewed. The whole earth is going to start to get renewed. When Jesus comes back, the place is a mess. It's broken. When David came and took over Israel, Saul had messed it up in shame. Saul was so ashamed. He was so afraid of what everybody thought about him. He wanted to appear to be strong. He was so ashamed. And David came unashamed, just wanting to be seen by God for who he really was. And Israel radically changed. The same thing is going to happen when Jesus comes. He's going to find a bunch of people that were just saying, I want to love you. I want to want to love you. And when he comes, they're going to be like, whoa, (laughs) he's giving me what I asked for. And even before that, he's going to give people what they asked for. So are you willing to wait in confidence that what people see doesn't matter? What God sees matters because there's going to be a ton of people that have amazing church meetings. They prophesy, they cast out demons. The worship is amazing, and they're dead inside. He said it to Sardis. He said, you have a name that you're great, but you're dead inside. That'd be terrible. It'd be way better to be alive inside and have nobody even know it, nobody even see it, right? Unashamed is not rebellious. So it's easy to hear this and be like, all right, I'm just going to be unashamed. I'm going to do what I want to do, me and God. We're going to take over the world. That's not what I'm talking about. That's rebellion, okay? Unashamed is not counterculture. Be small. We're going to be the, you know, the indies. We're going to be lo-fi. No, I like lo-fi music. But it's not counterculture. It's not angry. It's not provocative. Unashamed isn't any of these things. Unashamed is not isolated. It's not like, okay, I'm just guarding my heart from what everybody, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Just going to be myself. That's not you, actually. You was made to love people. You was made to feel unashamed, exposed to people. You see what I'm saying? 
If you can't be unashamed, exposed to people, you can't be unashamed. That's why Adam and Eve were trying to cover up. They're trying to act like they got it all together. God, I don't want you to find me like this. It'd be terrible if you really saw who I was. So I'm just going to project that I'm really successful. I'm really on fire. I'm really doing all these things. And he says, that actually is keeping you from being on fire. That's keeping you from getting changed by me. So unashamed is this. It's willing to stand for truth and love and close intimacy with God and others that don't get it without judging them. It's unafraid of man, but loving man. Unafraid of man, but loving man. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? Uh, say, say again. The Father and us, both. The joy set before him was a whole bunch of unashamed people living in intimacy with the Father. It was, the, it was, the, it was impossible without the Father and impossible without actually seeing what the father wanted. The father wants his children back. He wants his kids back, okay? So the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus lived in the requirement of one thing. Everybody say one thing. So did John the Baptist. Jesus and John the Baptist both lived in this one thing that I'm describing. They lived way different lives. If you know anything about these guys, John the Baptist, what did he wear? Sackcloth, camel skin. What did he eat? Stuff that sounds good to David Kine. <laughs> ah, I was just waiting to throw that one out there. David likes pickled things. Tom, Tom likes stuff that was just killed in his fresh. Okay. Just kidding. Well, I mean, I'm not kidding. That's true, but yeah, that was, that was my joke. You got my joke. Okay, now, they lived it out. These, the, both of these guys living this one thing out, they lived it in different expressions, but it was the one thing that they were modeling. So Jesus, he actually had a robe that was super valuable. In fact, the guards gambled to try and get it. He actually wore a very nice outer garment. Jesus actually hung out with his friends and, like, kicked back, relaxed. He drank. He ate. He went where sinners were. He wasn't afraid of what people thought about him. Neither was John the Baptist. But they lived two way different-looking lives, very different-looking lives. John the Baptist lived his one-thing life to get the world ready to see Jesus living his one-thing life. Do you see what I'm saying? So if you look at John and you're like, I'm going to emulate John, you'd miss Jesus. But if you look at John, you're like, what makes John like that? I want to be, what, I want to be connected to whatever makes John like that. You'd get connected right into Jesus. You see what I'm saying? When you look at a person that appears to be on fire, find out why. Are they on fire because they're working real hard and doing all the things and burned out and hate life and they're tired of everybody else not doing it right? That's probably not what you want to get connected to. But you find somebody who's on fire and they're like, you know what? If it wasn't for God, I wouldn't have any of this stuff. I'm just, I just, his mercy is so amazing. I just want to touch more and more and more of it. Now, you're probably going to find people that are kind of in between that, right? But you want to take the better part of that, the part that's like, oh, that does work to get close, okay? So, because people will do things that look similar because we mimic each other. But you can, you can mimic what it looks like to be an on-fire person. That's what Jesus was saying in Matthew 7. They prophesy in my name, cast out demons in my name. I don't know them. Like, they don't do it the way I did it. I did it in intimacy with my father. I felt free and clean. I'm, I'm the offspring of David. That Jesus was the offspring of David. Okay, listen to this. Luke 7, 30, 31 to 35. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned, for you and you we mourned to you, and you did not weep. Now, listen to this parable, because it's very easy to mishear this and think, oh, Jesus, he played the funeral dirge, and he played the wedding song, and we didn't get either one. 
That's not what this parable is saying. This parable is about people talking to people. There's some children in the marketplace saying, we played this song, why aren't you guys dancing? And then we tried to get you to mourn and you wouldn't mourn. And he says, John and I, we don't do that. Okay, now listen. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he is a demon. He resisted the wedding song. In appearance. In appearance. John was living a sanctified, like, uh, ascetic lifestyle. Like, he was, he kind of, he looked like he was cutting things out. John wasn't actually cutting things out. John just had something that displaced what everybody else cared about. And so when they were like, we played the wedding song for John, and John's all miserable and fasting and praying and all by himself, they didn't get John. They didn't understand John. John was filled up. He was violently warring against selfishness. He was full of something that kept him in the wilderness satisfied. He was full of something that people found attractive. He was a light. Like, people came to find out, why is he living like that? Now, Jesus, he did the exact same thing. Now, listen. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus resisted the funeral song. Now, isn't that ironic that John called himself a friend of the bridegroom? He was actually in the wedding. And Jesus is obviously the one who died. <laughs> but they said, John is resisting the wedding song. He's not happy like the rest of us. Joyful, the Messiah. I mean, joyful about the Messiah. John's like, you don't know the Messiah at all. You think I'm intense. Wait till he comes. Jesus, look at him. He's drinking wine. He's eating meat. He's with his friends. He doesn't get how serious and sober we should be. He's like, you have no idea what you're talking about. If they do this in the green, what do you think they're going to do in the dry, son? Do you understand? You can't tell by your flesh what's going on. It's got to be by the Spirit. And the only way you can know is how you're changing, how you're getting unashamed. How you're willing to just step before the throne of all glory and say, God, you wanted me as I am. Otherwise, that cross wouldn't be rooted in that love. I'm saying yes, just as I am right now. Worship team, you want to come back up? I'm saying yes, just as I am right now. There's three more pages of notes. If you care about this, if this is like, I got to find out more about this. There's a lot more in the notes for you. But you don't have to read those notes. Maybe someday you'll even come back to them. If you really want to find out what I'm talking about, just tell God, I want to want to love you. I want to want to change. I want to want to stop feeling guilty for not being good. I want to want to stop doing all these things that I don't even want to do because I can't find the one thing that would make me feel loved by you. Stay with me, if you will. We're going to ask him to give us something, to give us this one thing, a taste of it. What it's going to feel like is freedom. Okay, so right now, some of us feel a little tired, a little anxious. Some of us feel like happy. We feel all kinds of different things. God wants to lift something off of our soul, okay? So and everybody needs this. And there's, I, don't, I mean, I looked around the room. I didn't see anybody shining like light yet. If I missed you, shine brighter. There's some next step that we feel like we're not enough. And he wants to tell us, you were never going to be enough. I just want you, okay? Whatever that next step is for you is individual for you. I don't know where you're at. Holy Spirit, in this room, let's just look at him on the throne. Right now, the Father is on a throne of fire. Jesus sits next to him at his right hand on a, a sapphire throne. He's, he lives to pray for you. He lives to make intercession for you. 
There's a river of fire that comes out from this throne. There's seven torches like those burning pillars of fire before this throne. There's light, so much light. And there's something that you're afraid if he sees it, it wouldn't measure up. If he saw, if he really saw it, it just doesn't belong there. And it's tempting to walk out of the room. Don't walk out of the room. Holy Spirit, right now, whatever that thing is, let us feel your hand reaching, just taking it, putting it in the fire. The eye of your body is the lamp. If you want to know what it means to be really on fire, it's what you let in through your eye. That's what set you on fire. It's not what you spin your wheels doing. Right now, God, put our eyes on your hand taking that thing off of us. Now just tell him right now, just tell him, I'll wait for you to do that, God. I actually wait for you to, I'll wait in this place with you for you to do that. If you tell him that, he will do it. I guarantee it. I'm willing to wait with you, God, in this throne room for you to do that. I'm not going to run away because you haven't done it. I'm going to stay in the place where it could only be done. God, right now, freedom in the name of Jesus. Addiction. Addiction works this way. If it's addiction that he's highlighting to you, he just told me I'm going to break addiction this way. Shame. If it's shame that he showed you, this is how shame is dealt with. You can't not be ashamed. This is where shame is dealt with in this throne room. If it's control, this is where control gets dealt with. You don't control yourself out of control. Fire, God, in this room, send fire. This is what it means to be on fire. This is the only thing it means to be on fire. You live with the one who's on fire. The seraphim, the ones covered with eyes, they're alive and on fire. Fill this room with fire right now. Open up our eyes, God. In the name of Jesus, I want to encourage you If God gives you something to pray, come up and pray it this morning. Just come up and pray it.